Greetings, church. My name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32. That will be our primary text, 16th week here in Romans. I know you think we are moving slowly, but we are moving intentionally. Uh, and we will finish off this chapter today. So I'm looking forward to hearing what the Lord has to say to us, his church, continuing obviously to meet in this particular kind of way, but still coming to God's word. And so Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32. Let me read it for us, pray, and then we'll get to work. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees, verse 32 says, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are always thankful for your word. We're thankful that it gives clarity, first and foremost, to who you are. We thank you that you have given us minds that can know God because of your gracious work in our uh, bodies as your creation. You have made us to, to know you. And, and yet even more than that, you uh, have allowed yourself to be a knowable God, a God that we can comprehend because you are a God who reveals yourself to us. And so would you graciously show us your character today? Graciously show us who you are, that through knowledge of you, we would learn of ourselves, that we would learn uh, about each other, that we would learn about your world that you have created. So I ask, Father, that you'd help me to be clear and responsible with your word. Help us to know you more fully, more richly through this text today, that we would become an obedient, faithful church. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed, said amen. Well, Paul's moving into a new section of his opening chapter today in Romans. If you remember, he began by introducing himself. He then moved into a really an introduction of Jesus through one of the most robust Christologies that he has in Romans, if not the most robust and elongated um, explanation of who Jesus is. He followed that with a summary of the gospel. If you remember, particularly in verses 16 and 17, that the, that the gospel is the power of God and that the gospel is the righteousness of of God. And from that particular clarification and definition of the gospel, we moved into the wrath of God. We just finished that section last week that this wrath of God is upon the unrighteous and the ungodly. And here he shifts one more time, Paul does. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, in verse 28, he moves into a consideration about the implications of, judge, of judgment. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, maliciousness. They, they are gossips, and he continues on. But he begins with this idea of they had, did not acknowledge God, and therefore they are under his judgment. Um, like wisdom, we should understand, judgment has these two different aspects to it, two different types of judgment. There's a judgment that comes uh, from man or, and a judgment that comes from God. One is earthly from below and the other is divine. It's from God. Look ahead with me to Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Here we get a picture that we'll look at in more detail next week, but here we get a picture of these two types of judgments that I think will help us in our consideration of this particular text in chapter 1. Verse uh, 1 through 3 reads this way, Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So there's the judgment of man, it's earthly, uh, it's from below, there's the judgment of God that is divine, it's, it's, it's from above, it's from God. And the judgment of God is actually upon those who judge, who are judgmental, who possess this earthly judgment. And the reason that judgment is upon them is because, did you notice in this particular text, they're not righteous. They are judging people, they are judgmental towards people for reasons that they themselves are guilty of. And so this hypocrisy, Paul says, is deserving of the wrath of God, is deserving of the judgment of God, and consequently, what we read in this particular ch chapter is that God gave them up, or God gave them over. If you remember, we've already read that phrase twice here in chapter 1, in verse 24 and in 26, that God gave them up. And the operative word there, as well as in verse 28, is that word gave. In the original language, in Greek, the word gave is paradidomi. Paradidomi, it's the word frequently used in the Gospels. It, consider this particular sequence from Mark chapter 14 uh, and 15. Paying careful attention to this particular word, paradidomi, in the original language. Mark 14, 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray. That, that phrase to betray is paradidomi, to betray him, that's Jesus. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray, paradidomi, to betray him. And then we move to Mark 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over. Paradidomi. Delivered him over to Pilate. Mark 15, 15 then concludes, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered, paradidomi, he delivered him to be crucified. In each case, the idea of giving over is not simply about a physical exchange. If, if you notice in the language, Mark 14, 15, Judas exchanges for money. Uh, Mark 15, um, the chief priests 
exchange him or give him over directly to Pilate, and then Pilate gives him over to be crucified. So it's not just a physical exchange or a physical giving over, it's a relational one. And this relational giving over is the result of a kind of judgment. In, in chapter 14 in Mark, it's about money. In, in chapter 15 of Mark, it, it's about those with authority. And in, in, uh, continuing in chapter 15, it's about affection and glory. See, Judas determined that Jesus was less valuable to him than money, so he gave him up. The chief priests and elders and scribes determined that delivering over Jesus would grant them more power than surrendering to Jesus as Lord, so they gave him up. Pilate thought he would be loved more by the crowd if he crucified Jesus rather than if he worshipped him, so he gave him up. And, and like Paul writes that in chapter 2 in Romans, in passing judgment and making this claim, Judas, the chief priest, and Pilate, in, in judgment on another, you condemn yourself. See, this, this, this is self-condemnation because their judgment, not only Judas, chief priests, and Pilate, but also those whom Paul is writing about, their judgments were evil and wrong. Their judgment lacked righteousness. After all, Jesus is the most valuable. Jesus is the most powerful. Jesus is the greatest love. The determinations then and the judgments of Judas, the religious leaders, and Pilate are similar in tone to the judgment that Paul speaks about here in our text in Romans 1 and chapter 2. These are the judgments of man. These are the earthly judgment and each leads to condemnation. They are the offspring of unrighteousness and ungodliness of idolatry. See, when we place our greed for money or our lust for power or our infatuation with earthly loves as the most central in our lives, when we exchange that truth of God for a lie, we also exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. <clears throat> And the teaching here in the latter half then of Romans chapter one is that when we make these types of judgments to consider that something is more valuable, precious, powerful, good, loving than, than God, when we make those kinds of judgments, we exchange, we're giving over God for what we've determined to be more valuable, powerful, lovely than him. He gives us what we want. When we do that, he gives us what we want. This is the consequence of sinful idolatry. Now, I think our natural response to that likely has been our natural response in the past couple of weeks is to just stop doing that or, or to avoid doing that, right? I think it's a good urge. We should not want to do unrighteous, ungodly, idolatrous, and sinful things. The problem is, is that we can't. We can't just stop doing that. See, our sinful condition precludes us from simply no longer sinning. This is true about the sin nature in general, and it's true about idolatry in particular. But the good news, the hope for us, is that here in verses 28 and 32, we're given a picture, a power, a pathway, this hope for how we are able to put the sin of idolatry to death. In church, we must put these sins to death. We must put idolatry to death. So look again at verse 28 in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
Whereas the giving over in verses 24 and 26 were in response to lusts and dishonorable passions or, or a sexual nature, or they were of a sexual nature. Here in verse 28, Paul directs our attention to the mind. Notice two things. First, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Paul is speaking about a lack of considering God at the deepest level of knowing. Paul is not speaking about a type of knowledge which is merely informational. He's speaking about a type of knowledge that is worshipful. Meaning, as one commentator put it, there is a deliberate refusal on the part of Paul's audience in uh, first century. There's a deliberate refusal to know God. They had opportunities. They had access. They had permission. In fact, Paul has already said in verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But they still, though they have no excuse, though they've been exposed to the nature and goodness and knowledge of God, even in creation, they still refuse to honor him as God. And now in verse 28, they fail to acknowledge God at all in their thinking. And I wonder if you can relate. I'd like to suggest to you that it's incredibly similar for us today with those whom Paul was speaking about in his audience in Rome. See, let's just think about the access that we have to God's word. In other words, knowledge of God, opportunities to worship God through the scriptures. We have unprecedented access to God's word, yet we have unprecedented biblical illiteracy. Not only through digital medias like audio and visual, we can read it on our, on our phones, but we can even listen to it with a backbeat. But also, printed Bibles are more accessible and available than ever before in, in languages and translations than, 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 again, ever before. Yet, according to LifeWay Research in July of 2019, less than two-thirds of Christians read their Bibles weekly, and less than a third read their Bibles daily. The number gets worse the younger demographic that you consider. Additionally, during COVID restrictions, many churches like ours have moved to digital forms of worship gatherings and liturgies and services. This makes the gathering or what is uh, connected to the liturgy of a church much more accessible to anyone and everyone who wants to participate. You don't have to drive, you don't have to walk, you don't have to get on a train, you don't have to catch uh, a lift. You don't have to do, you don't have to do anything. You just open up your computer, your device. And yet, according to Barna Research, about half of millennials who go to church or were connected, committed to a church before COVID have admitted to ghosting these digital gatherings since COVID. In in other words, about 50% of millennials today are not even attending the churches that they say that they're a part of. So obviously that's not about you because you're here, you're watching this, you're you're part of the gathering today, you're good. But this is a problem. This is a problem for all of us. See, we have more access, more information, but less understanding and less commitment. I think it's because we have less accountability. See, our relationship with the, the primary disciplines of our faith, like the gathering of God's people that we read we are to be committed to in Hebrews chapter 10 and hiding God's word in our heart that we wouldn't sin against him in Psalm 119. What, what, what's revealed about our relationship with the primary disciplines is our relationship with God. See, in Paul's 
words, we too do not see fit to acknowledge God on a regular basis. I don't think this is because we don't value the Bible, nor don't gather, don't rather value our church family. I actually, I think we do. I think we really value the scriptures. I think we really value God's word. I think we really value one another. But like Judas, like the religious leaders, like Pilate, we simply choose something we believe is more valuable, powerful, or lovely in the moment or even promises beyond that moment to give us prolonged stability in what we value, where we find power and where we find love. See, we choose sleep instead. We choose work. We choose Netflix. We choose to ignore God by giving something else our attention. We don't just ignore him. We grab hold of something else. We give ourselves to something or someone else other than God. Something which in a moment or in a prolonged period of time seems more advantageous to our well-being. And in all of that, then we believe we will not be held accountable. And so we do as we please. See, this is the type of behavior to which Paul says that God gives people over. Meaning, as we read uh, through the previous passage, God allows us to choose a particular path which will lead to a natural consequence. See, the way we live will have a consequence. The way we go through COVID will have a consequence now and in the future. This is what the scriptures are telling us, that God will give us over to these things. Specifically, verse 28, again, that God gave them over to what? A debased mind. The consequence of a person who does not think about God is a debased mind. And that word is really important. That word there, debased, was in the first century used for a coin that was substandard in a mint that they had to discard. So if we do not think about God rightly, we will not be able to think rightly at all. If we do not think about God rightly, we will not be able to think rightly at all. God is the source of wisdom and knowledge. Or as one scholar says of these whom Paul is speaking about, their minds became quite unable to make trustworthy moral judgments. See, when we are unable to make sound moral judgments, we are not able to live righteously. That's how Paul concludes this verse. Look again at the latter half of verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, when we fail to acknowledge God, we fail to live as God would be pleased. Ungodly thinking leads to ungodly living. That's the point of Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse two. A, man's, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Or as Eugene Peterson translates the verse, wise thinking leads to right living. Stupid thinking leads to wrong living. They're connected. Our thinking and our living are connected. And here's how we'll think about it today. Sinful thinking leads to sinful living. Righteous thinking leads to righteous living. So what's on your mind? What kind of living and action does, does not acknowledge God? How does this, where does this all lead to? What does it look like? This is where Paul goes next. See, those about whom Paul is writing were not in their right minds. Therefore, they did not walk in righteousness. Paul, rather, Paul, they, rather, they were 
uh, under the wrath of God. These were the ungodly and the unrighteous that Paul was writing about because their minds were unable to be grounded in or acknowledge the one who is truly righteous, God himself. And here's what it leads to. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They all... They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Most agree there's not a real order or cohesion to these lists. And yet when you look at them, three different kinds of categories or sets of vices come into focus. And it's good to note that these types of vice lists were common in the first century, particularly in Judaism and in the New Testament. We find lists like this in Matthew and Galatians, 1 Timothy and 1 Peter. When we, when we look at it, though, these three things sort of emerge. First, Paul's list begins with four abstract nouns in the, in the dative case in Greek that, that are more general. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And the second portion uh, list five genitive singular nouns and are related to envy and its consequences. Notice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. Finally, there's a third section with 12 words in the accusative plural, and they list sins that are common even in the pagan world. See, Paul is clear that this entire list of vices are not simply actions of, whose, of people whose minds are substandard, but their minds are filled with these sinful qualities. Notice that they're not just, they're not verbs, but they're nouns. They're descriptors of these people and qualities that they possess. Verse 29 even says two different times that they were filled with all manner. And then a little bit later in the verse, they are all full of envy. So this isn't just like a passing glance. This isn't just a bad habit. This is what categorizes and marks the life of a particular person. In other words, church, hear this. Not thinking about God will mark your life. Not thinking about God will mark your life. It's important to see the destructive and exponential decay of a life whose mind is not stayed and grounded on the righteousness of God. The person who does not acknowledge God in the way that they view themselves and view the world, they begin to do what ought not to be done and then become unrighteous people. Again, these are those who are under the wrath of God based on verse 18. Though Paul is likely describing Gentiles, who are yet to confess their sin and confess the lordship of Jesus, and they're not yet converted, they're not yet Christians, we would do well to consider the specific vices or sins that spring from a mind which is not grounded in Christ. See, in thinking and praying through this this week, four different ideas from these lists came to mind that I really believe are, are poignant for us as a church family that we need to consider together, we need to confess together, and we need to individually perhaps ask the Lord, search me and know me, try me and know my anxious thoughts. I think as, as we uh, desire to think rightly, we also need to live in, in, in a manner where we're living with vulnerability with those around us, like our groups, perhaps right after this call or when you meet later this week, that you need to confess these things. 
because sinful thinking will lead to sinful living and righteous thinking will lead to righteous living. See, a wrong, what will happen as we investigate these four different ideas is that I think a wrong view of God will begin to surface. That ultimately is where this is all grounded. First, let's consider covetousness. And it's closely linked to envy. The word translated here for covetousness might clarify Paul's intention if we translate it as greed. Commentator Leo Morris explains that what is being communicated here is an inordinate desire to have more. Paul is talking about the desire to have more as an unsettled disposition. In in other words, there is this constant discomfort and belief and thought that I don't have enough or I don't have what is right. I don't have what someone else has and that would be better for me. See, a person whose mind is not grounded in Christ is given over to an insatiable appetite, a longing that cannot be satisfied. Therefore, the one who always wants more always envies those who have more. It leads to competition. It leads to envy towards someone. See, that, that, that's ultimately what it is, is that envy steals your joy and it steals your restfulness because you never feel at peace with who you are or what you have. Covetousness begins to corrode and corrupt us. And this is not good. I wonder if covetousness is something for you to consider. Secondly, malice. Malice may seem like an archaic and even foreign concept, but I think it surfaces in our hearts regularly on a consistent basis. The philosopher Aristotle defined malice as the tendency to put the worst construction upon everything. The worst construction upon everything. In some respects, we can think about malice as the opposite of giving someone the benefit of the doubt. When we take someone's words and actions and interpret them in the worst possible light, particularly without regard for their character or our relationship with them. See, we sin in the area of malice when we begin to do this. We may not wish harm on them, but we constantly perhaps are believing that they wish harm upon us. And therefore, we begin to think about their words and think about their character in a way that does not match reality. Thirdly, gossips. Gossips and slanderers are are closely linked in meaning as well. See, the literal meaning of the Greek word that's translated gossips is whisperers. How unnerving is that? The idea is that a gossip is someone who whispers things about others that they would never say out loud. Now, it's, it's no better to speak evils and untruths about someone out loud because that's slander. So what's being juxtaposed here, which we must ask ourselves, is, our, is, is my wrong thinking, is my sinful thinking living to the kind of, of, of habit or participation in gossip or slander? We can ask ourselves the question, that is there speaking out loud with evil and untruth about someone? That's slander. Is there whispering quietly, hushedly about someone with untruth and evil? That's gossip. Both are results from sinful thinking. Lastly, faithlessness. It also stood out to me this week, something that we ought to consider. See, functional atheism is a constant temptation for followers of Christ. See, too often we look to God and we trust God, we acknowledge God in some settings, but not in others. See, we may think that we are a faithful people, but there are plenty of places in our life where we don't think about God at all. He doesn't come up 
in our thoughts. He doesn't come out in our speech. And it certainly does not manifest in the kind of life that we live. We put God on pause. We believe he only is, is powerful and authoritative and speaks into certain arenas of our lives. This is faithlessness. Believing that God can show up and be present in some areas of my life, but not in others. This is functional atheism. See, the implications of this particular word take on an even more clarified meaning when we think about faithlessness in, in, a, in a very practical way is, the breaking your, is breaking your word or any agreement. In other words, when we give our life to God, we entrust our life to him, then when we show up in different ways and don't entrust our life to him and don't consider him and don't acknowledge him, we have broken our word and our agreement and the covenant that we have with him particularly when it seems immediately and personally advantageous or helpful to be faithless in a particular situation, then we abandon our faith. See, our collective unrighteousness as human beings is in direct opposition to the character of God. And I think for us, it pops up in these different kinds of ways. We may not have issue with every single sin that Paul lists here, but we ought to consider and even ask the Lord, would you direct and guide my thinking where in this list, where in one of these ideas ought I confess my sin? Ought I acknowledge that wrong thinking has lead, led to wrong living? <clears throat> See, God is ultimately very different than we are. This is why he gives us over. This is why he gives them up. You see, God is both faithful and full of integrity. The opposite of what is demonstrated by a life that is marked by sinful thinking and sinful activity. See, he is righteous in all that he does. His word and his actions are good and are in eternal harmony. What is on his mind is righteous and what he does is righteous. They are identical. This is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. He is near while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We are different, us and God. Where our words and actions are often not in alignment, where our, our false thinking lead, leads to this false living, his righteous thinking is always leading to righteous living. See, God's thoughts and God's ways are far above us, not only because they are complete and superior, but also because they are in harmony. There is no hypocrisy in God. God is the living and breathing opposite of hypocrisy. The writer of Numbers picks up on this and says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God's mind is righteous. God's actions are righteous. This is the indirect opposition between what, or rather there is a direct correlation between what he thinks and what he says and what he accomplishes. And so, D.L. Moody put it this way, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. God never made a promise that was too good to be true. Not only so, but righteousness is defined by him. All that flows from God is righteousness. 
God is not just righteous because he is faithful to his word, but also he is faithful to his word because he is righteous. This is his character. In other words, God is not saying stuff and we're all waiting to see if he will be true to his word and what he says will be good. Rather, all that he does is good. All that he says is good. All that he thinks is good. He is the embodiment then of true value, of true power, and of true love. He alone is ultimately valuable to us as his people. He alone is supremely powerful to us as his people. He alone is supremely love. God is love. God is glorious. God is omnipotent. God is love. This is who he is. With God's character in mind and the sinfulness of humanity becomes like incredibly clear for us. Look again at at Romans 1. Verse 32 now. This is how Paul follows the vice list and completes the first chapter. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice what they know, even, they don't do. So at first they don't acknowledge him, but now here they have information, they have access, but they don't do it. There's a direct, or rather a disconnect between what they know and think and what they say and what they do. They do not acknowledge God in their actions and have chosen these these various sins, this long list of sins, and trusted these vices to ensure that they would lead to the good life something they believed was more valuable and powerful and lovely than God and his word. They chose those things instead. In fact, their knowledge goes well beyond God's decrees and commands. Did you notice? They know the pending consequences as well. They know their disobedience will lead to death. At some level, they know the principle that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 6, verse 21 and 23. Hear what it says. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, Paul writes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. They know the people who Paul's talking about, they know that these vices, these sins, and ultimately the idolatry underneath it all leads to death, and they disobey anyway. They disobey anyway. What they are demonstrating, then, is, is a moral apathy, which is rampant in our time. We just don't care. You might uh, think this, this moral apathy only plagues sort of weaker minds, right, of the human race. And, and, and in fact, This is what the evil one would tell you when you start getting into the cycle of moral apathy. Like, well, shame on you. You're so broken and busted and that you don't even know how to obey God. You're not thinking rightly about him. You're not living rightly. That there's this sort of condemnation that we take on because it just happens to the weaker people. But actually, even in philosophy, a common occurrence is known as the unethical ethicist. Those who know, and those who know better, those who know the consequences of particular actions don't do writing for The Atlantic in 2015. Emma Green reported that 60% of the ethicists rated eating red meat as morally bad, but only 27% said they didn't really, or rather regularly eat it. 
Ethicists and political philosophers were no more likely to vote than other kinds of professors, nor were ethicists more likely to donate blood or register as an organ donor. On no issue did ethicists show unequivocally better behavior than the two, than, than, uh, the two comparison groups researchers reported. See, this is a problem of humanity, not intellect and privilege. Moral apathy plagues all of us. We know the consequence. We have full knowledge of what's going to take place, and we disobey, we sin, we make poor choices anyway. So not only do we have wrong thinking that leads to wrong living, sinful thinking that leads to sinful living, but even our thinking that is good and right and accurate does not lead to righteous living. This apathy about simply not caring, because I think this is where we go when we realize that ultimately there is a kind of attrition, a kind of brokenness to the way that we're, we're, we're living. This apathy is our choice. And at first it seems like a very free thing to think. It, it, it feels like maybe this, this is the way out of all of this, all of these, this tension, all this problem. See, to no longer care seems to release us from the expectations and obligations of a moral life bound up in the confining uh, rigors of God's righteousness, but nothing frees us from God's expectations for his creation. This is why we're under wrath. In sin. Therefore, nothing frees us from God's judgment against sin. It is not freeing ever to do something that will kill you. That is the opposite of freedom. That's foolishness. What's more is that a deeper issue is revealed in our lack of care. See, in the hearts of Paul's readers and as well as ours, there's something going on underneath apathy that really gives us a picture of the healing and the help that we need. See, apathy is a symptom of fear. We don't care because we are so afraid. We don't care because we're fearful. After all, to care is to expose ourselves to cost. This is why when you found out that that significant other did not like you, you acted like you didn't like them either. And that, that's what I did anyway in junior high. That when somebody didn't like you, you acted like you didn't like them because to, to, to admit at that moment that you did like them, you were interested, opens you up to significant cost and pain and difficulty. So ultimately, we are fearful about what caring about God's righteous decree and acknowledging God will cost us. The fear and moral apathy is built on bad theology. This apathy and this fear is built on bad thinking about who God is. We are off in the way that we are considering or completely avoiding and ignoring God. Let's consider how this happens in these, these four different ways that we have spoken about, the four different vices or sins from this list. See, what will be revealed in our covetousness and envy, our malice, gossip and slander and faithlessness is a wrong view of who God is. Covetousness and envy come from thinking that God is not supremely valuable like Judas did. We wrongly believe he is not our greatest treasure or he would be enough. Instead, we think God is only valuable in certain ways. You see, when he is not supremely valuable, we look to materialistic things, social media followings and someone else's house and someone else's possessions, someone else's more 
and think if we possessed those things, our lives would be more valuable, more happy, more joyful, more at rest, more at peace, whatever it may be. Sinful thinking leads to sinful living. Righteous thinking about who God is leads to righteous living. When we know that God is supremely valuable, we will not covet. How about maliciousness or malice? as well as gossip and slander. These result from thinking that God is not the greatest power, like the religious leaders did in Mark. See, he is not our fortress in whom we take refuge. And when God is our true source of power and stability and strength, then then we do not have to misrepresent someone and we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We're not looking and scratching and clawing for more power. We trust that God will give us what we need. We trust his power. We're not looking for relational power over people because we have received power by way of the Holy Spirit. See, sinful thinking leads to sinful living. Righteous living, thinking rightly about God, leads to righteous living. When we know that God is truly powerful, that he will protect our reputation, that he will give all that we need in Christ Jesus. He will protect us. He will guide us. He will heal us. He will help us. When we trust that he will do all of those things, we don't have to fight for those things ourselves. We can be at peace, at rest. We won't go to malice. We won't go to gossip and we won't go to slander. We won't cut down someone because we believe that will build us up. We will realize that someone allowed himself to be cut down to bring us up. That's who God is. That's what real power is. Faithlessness. Faithlessness also comes from a wrong view of God, thinking that God is not truly loving. After all, if we believed that God really loved us and desired to take care of us, we'd trust Him. When we think about His love and know His love, we, we are courageous in the face of opposition and discomfort. We don't abandon God, we actually cling to Him. We don't break our word, we trust Him. See, sinful thinking leads to sinful living, but righteous thinking, knowing who God is and submitting to who God is, leads to righteous living. When we know that God loves us, we trust him. When we truly believe that his affection and his, his work is for our good, then we have faith in him. We believe him. What do you think about? What's your mind set on? When your neighbor has something that you want, where does your mind go? When you have a chance to gain power by withholding from someone else, where does your mind go? When you are prone to worry and fear and doubt, where's your mind going in that? See, Paul said we can have a debased mind or a mind of earthly judgment or a mind of divine judgment. In a Christmas sermon a few years ago, Dr. Timothy Keller called Jesus the logic of God. I thought that was pretty intriguing. The late uh, apologist and teacher, Ravi Zacharias, in his devotional book called The Logic of God, affirms this idea. Zacharias said, I am convinced that Jesus Christ alone uniquely answers the deepest questions of our hearts and minds. Think about that. It's commonplace in the church to say that Jesus is the answer. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the answer? Or, Or in another way of putting it, what does it mean that Jesus is the logic of God. Well, first we should ask, what's the question? If Jesus is the answer, what's the question? To say that Jesus is the answer or, or is the answers or the logic of God is to say that he is the power, he is the point, he's the pathway through which we understand God and all of his creation. 
That means if we want to think and live righteously or in righteousness, we must think and act like Christ because he's the logic of God. He is the answer. He is the one to whom we should look. See, Keller went on to say, that perhaps we desire airtight, an airtight argument of God's existence or the exclusivity of the God of the Bible. Perhaps what we believe that we need is just the right exact information, that if we had the right information about God, then we would know that he is truly powerful, that he is truly most valuable, that he is truly loved, that we would believe him if we just had the right information. But we don't get this airtight argument. What we get is a person. We're given a person, we're given Jesus Christ, born of a woman in real space and real time, the son of the living God in the flesh. See, Jesus is the logic of God because he himself is the fullest expression of God's righteousness in word and action, in thought, all in harmony. After all, John describes Jesus as the word or the logos, the logic, the word, specifically the word made flesh. Jesus is righteousness in human form. The apostle wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So in John, the incarnation of the Son of God is also to be understood as the coming together of grace and truth, thought and deed, word and action, promise and fulfillment. Jesus is the logic of God. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answers. So how are we to take up Christ? How are we to take up this logic, this understanding, this word made flesh? Well, we can't just start thinking like him. He's not merely our example. And to just start saying, well, I'm going to start thinking in the, in the, the pattern, in the pathway of Jesus. I'm going to start thinking his thoughts. Our thinking is the problem, so it can't be the solution. We have wrong thoughts about God. We have wrong thoughts about the world that are leading to wrong and sinful living. See, the only way to think differently then is to get a new mind. Are you with me, church? The only way to think differently is to get a new mind. We don't just start thinking differently. We need a new mind. We need a new logic, which transcends earthly judgment and earthly wisdom writing to the people in ancient Philippi, Paul g gave an incredible care and attention to the mind. I want you to read this popular passage with me about Christ, but listen for what Paul says about the mind and about what it is for you and I to have this mind. In fact, turn to Philippians chapter two to the right. Turn to the right just a few chapters or a few books of the Bible. Philippians chapter two, verse one through eight. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A few things can be discerned about the mind that is given to us through the new birth when we are reconciled and redeemed by Jesus Christ, particularly as it relates to our mind. The mind of Christ, did you notice, is one that brings unity. Paul says, be of the same mind and of one mind. This is a a kind of consciousness and logic that we share together with God's people. Secondly, he says, the mind of Christ is a humble mind. Paul says in humility, he didn't count others as more significant or does not count others more significant than yourself, and and that God in Christ makes himself humble, and he takes on the form of a servant. Have this mind, he says, among yourselves. Thirdly, the mind of Christ is one which is a grace given. It's a gift. Paul says that this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. That, That means if you want to have righteous thinking, if you want to have a kind of judgment that is from above, a kind of understanding, a wisdom, the, the, the mind of Christ. If you want to have the mind of Christ, you can have it in Christ. Because the mind we receive then in Christ reorients us towards community, humility, and grace. Then Paul could go on to say this in Philippians chapter four. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Our minds can be set in the right and the righteousness of God and right thinking about God, and therefore righteous living is possible in Christ when we have a new mind. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul will put it this way, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect. See, when we discern the Lord's will, we can perform or obey the Lord's will. And this mind of Christ that we are afforded through the death and resurrection of Christ and the grace of Christ is a mind that can obey. It's a mind that knows God's will. It's a mind that obeys God's will. See, because of the incarnation of Christ, the logic of God, and the substitutionary death of Christ, our debased and sinful minds are put to death on the cross and replaced with a new mind, the mind of Christ. See, in Christ, we have a mind that is able to acknowledge God And when we think righteously, we live righteously, beginning with the knowledge of these fundamental truths. Here's what the mind of Christ is inborn with this understanding and this worship and this joyful submission that God is supremely valuable, that God is supremely powerful, that God is supremely love. And see, we are afforded this great gift, this consciousness, this logic, this mind, and we are protected from being given over. See, because of our thinking and because of our living, we were meant to be given over to our sin, to our idols, which would ultimately be to our demise. We would be, uh, have debased minds that would get excused or disregarded just like a coin that didn't meet standards. But we're not given over in Christ. Why? Because Christ gave himself over for us. 
See, because Christ gave himself over for us, we do not have to be given over by God in judgment and wrath over to our sins. We can be given a new mind. And this mind leads to righteous thinking, which leads to righteous living, empowered by God's spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that this is true of us in Christ, that we are a new creation and have a new mind that would think rightly about you. So help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.